You're listening to the Together in Literacy podcast, a podcast for educators, families, and advocates that connects the research of reading, dyslexia awareness, and the whole child. We're your hosts, Casey Harrison and Emily Gibbons. As two literacy dyslexia specialists, we've come together to talk about literacy, dyslexia, and the connection to the social-emotional impact that it has on our students, their families, and the educators who serve them. We welcome you to join us on this exciting and educational journey into dyslexia as we come together in literacy. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us at www.togetherinliteracy.com. Thank you for joining us today. Let's get started. Well, welcome everyone. I'm here with Casey and we are in season two, episode eight of the Together in Literacy podcast. Hi, Casey. Hello. We are thrilled to have you with us listening today. We have a really great topic, but before we do, we always like to take time to share a review from one of our wonderful listeners. So this one is from Strong Readers. I just discovered the podcast and wow, I can't thank you enough for including the needs of older students. What a lifeline this is. As a teacher of older high schoolers, I cannot thank you enough for compiling these resources. It's invaluable. It's so hard to find research strategies, resources, and curricula for our older kiddos that incorporate science of reading. I can't wait to listen to all the episodes. I felt like I'm on an island and now I've just spied the rescue plane. You ladies rock, lifesavers. Well, we know that this is a topic that really is not addressed often enough in the science of reading discussions. Mm -hmm. And so we just wanted to dive in as best we could share our perspective and we're just so grateful that people are finding the information valuable we are talking about two different episodes we that addressed the older student and we will a little bit again today in today's topic but thank you so much for that lovely review from strong readers we would love to also hear from all of you so please take some time rate the podcast, follow it, leave us a review, and we will be reading it on a future episode. So today's topic is something that is continuing our conversation about how structured literacy isn't just talking about phonics. Mm -hmm. And we are going to get into the subject of writing namely the cognitive demands of writing and incorporating writing into a structured literacy lesson thoughtfully and what that looks like. So Casey and I will be sharing certainly from our interventionist perspective, but also from our experience as classroom teachers as well. But when we mention the cognitive demands of writing, that means we are also able to address the social emotional needs of our students because it's never just about the dyslexia. Right. There are other pieces of the puzzle here that we are addressing. 
And writing is one of those big, heavy hitting skills that takes a great deal of time and energy to become good at, become skilled at, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to let Casey kick it off and we're going to be discussing some important components of writing, some implications for the classroom, and then a little bit more about what that looks like in structured literacy lessons. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you, Emily. Yes. And I'm so glad to be here with everyone today. Um, And as Emily said, When we are talking about writing, there is a great deal of cognitive demand that happens. And often, I think one of the the things that we may forget about as educators and parents is that when we are asking students to write, there is a large language demand. And so when we're talking about structured literacy and the Orton-Gillingham principles, we are rooted in language. And as Emily said, you know, our lessons encompass so much more than phonics because our learning about language, it really is a meta-linguistic task in which language is analyzed and considered as an entity. So we have this agreement that learning to read is a language-based skill and that the relationship between our oral language and our reading and our writing are reciprocal, right? And we need to be able to access that oral piece, that oral language piece, and then apply that to our written work. So as we move to written language, we must understand that writing is a really complex and effortful cognitive task. So there is a great deal of skill and knowledge that needs to be applied for a student to properly express their thinking into written form. And as educators, we how we teach and support students with the understanding and the application of these skills is critical for developing proficiency in writing across all content areas. So as Emily said today, we're going to discuss some of the cognitive demands of writing. We're going to embed some scaffolds and accommodations to aid students. And we're really going to dive into how writing fits within a structured literacy lesson. And as Emily and I were preparing for this, we realized that really each of these (laughs) pieces could be their own episode. So we've done our best to break these down into 10 components of writing. And so we're going to talk about these within the construct of a structured literacy lesson. And Emily and I both work with very young children, but we also work with older students as well, all the way up to college adults. So when we're talking about this, we're really coming through that lens across those, those ages as well. Okay. And writing, as we know, is, is communication. Mm-hmm. At the heart of everything, it's communication. It's it's using our oral language skills in the written form. Mm-hmm. And for children who may struggle with communication, struggle with executive function, this is going to be an even greater demand. So the things that we bring up today in this list of 10 components, uh, we want to sort of be increasingly mindful of the fact that never just about like, here, we're going to write this story. (laughs) There's so many other pieces that we have to take into consideration when we want them to be able to craft the story or written response or just simple sentences. So the first thing 
is the cognitive demands of writing. So we think about writing at the heart of, of course, is communication. But within that, we have these motor tasks. The physical act holding a writing instrument <laughs> in your hand and being able to compose onto paper. That is sometimes very, very challenging for children who may have some fine motor issues. And I see that increasingly more of a concern as children are entering into school years. Their fine motor skills, cutting paper skills, things like that are really not as strengthened as we would like them to see. And so those cognitive demands, when we want them to even physically sit in a chair and have the posture mm -hmm. to compose in a sentence, a paragraph, a story for some children really is quite challenging. So we want to provide them with the proper instruction and scaffold and strategies so that when they we are asking them to compose in the written form, this is not something that becomes a sense of just really frustration for kids. Right. Yeah. And I think when we're talking about, you know, that mechanics of writing or, or the motor piece of writing, we're talking about handwriting and we're talking about letter formation. And this also includes typing. Uh, a lot of times I will see people provide students an accommodation of having typing be available for writing. And that's wonderful. However, if we are not preparing students to be proficient at typing, it it is still a hindrance in terms of cognitive demand. They are still hunting and pecking for letters, which is taking up that very valuable working memory space. And so we have to make sure that we are teaching students handwriting, letter formation, and typing to automaticity so that students can then have their freeing up that brain power so that they can focus on the message that they're writing instead of trying to remember how to form letters. Absolutely. So taking the time and even proper stroke, you know, stroke formation, all those things, you know, cursive handwriting can make that writing process flow much more smoothly. If we do believe in devoting time to cursive handwriting instruction, as Casey and I both do, mm -hmm. um, that is one mechanism for students to be able to move through the writing process much more smoothly, but that takes a certain amount of direct instruction and practice offering feedback and monitoring that. Right. And I think if we're thinking, you know, if we are connecting this to what this means for our core instruction, as Emily said, right, we need to explicitly teach letter formation. If we're teaching cursive, we have to teach letter formation plus connecting letters, um, typing and things like that. So when I was in the classroom and I taught kindergarten for quite some time in the classroom as well as other grades, but when I taught kindergarten, I would dedicate the front part of my semester, the first semester to explicitly teaching handwriting. And the school that I worked at, that was such a big deal that you know, the principal would even come in and check our handwriting as educators. We really yeah. focused on that. And yes, we want our work to be neat and we want students to, to have, to be able to do their handwriting, but it was for the greater purpose of writing in content later, because once that was automatized, the students were able 
to not have to worry about how to form their letters and how to have it be legible. And so we were able to explicitly teach that. So I think taking the time up front before we just jump into handing students a paper and ask them to write about what they did over the weekend, we have to provide the students with that explicit instruction to automatize their handwriting. Part of the handwriting, even within the confines of the structured literacy lesson, whatever phonics skill you might be teaching, this is a there is an opportunity within the lesson where you can, whatever handwriting practice you've done so far, maybe whatever letters you've introduced so far, you can create situations where there are words that follow that phonics or spelling pattern that also coincide with the letters that you've taught mm -hmm. and create you know, just short lists of words where they're practicing writing their words that also follow that phonics or spelling pattern. So for instance, you know, if you're teaching and I had just taught words with long O last week. So the words that we practice in cursive handwriting follow that the same phonics pattern. And so it's just woven in and it doesn't feel separate because this is what the lesson focus was. And we're also incorporating handwriting. So it just flows just very, very smoothly within there. And it doesn't feel like, stop the presses. We're doing handwriting right now. It's just a part of the lesson. Absolutely. And there's research about how when we are creating that linkage between the letter formation and the sound and the letter name, right, that we are creating yeah. this connection in our brain. So yeah. Definitely right. And, you know, I'm, I'm having those students and people may not know to do this, but as they're forming those letters, they're, they are verbalizing out loud mm -hmm. while they're forming those letters. So, for instance, one of the words was drone and we read a decodable passage about drones and the word was drone. It was, and we're saying as we're forming those letters in cursive, D-R-O-N-E. And uh, because children, when they're learning cursive, not just have to learn how to write the letters it's also reading so it's great because you're incorporating both decoding and encoding and emily so. you you do so lovely connect us right into the next component right which is spelling again when spelling is not automatized students will need to expend mental energy to write words down with correct spelling and even if students have the accommodation for not being penalized for spelling errors, which we certainly want to have in place, right? For our mm -hmm. students as we're closing the gap, but right. they are still exerting this mental energy when having to sound out words as they're writing. So we want this to become more automatic for our students to really free up that working memory and to allow the message to be the focus. And this is done through our structured literacy lessons, through that explicit and systematic teaching. So when our students, you know, struggle to spell words correctly, one of the other things that happens is they often uh, will feel frustrated. And then oftentimes they will simplify their word choice because of their lack of knowledge in those orthographic patterns in our language. Even adults do that, Casey, mm -hmm. when they find... Oh, I don't remember how to use that word. I'll just use, yeah. use a simpler word, right? So it's very, very common. But this is where Casey brings up such a good point where they're exerting so much mental energy. So in order to free that up, we want them to be, to have direct instruction in um, orthographic patterns. And mm -hmm. that is where I feel like this is so important to incorporate spelling generalization instruction. Right. 
Absolutely. And something as simple as when you get to the point where the child is trying to decide to use K or CK or C or K, you know, having the little cat image and the little kite image and knowing your letter choices at a very early stage, children can begin learning those spelling generalizations and that, and those are revisited so, so often. So we can start with front loading them with that direct instruction. Mm -hmm. When we're in the process of writing, they'll remember, oh, no, in this case, I'm using a K and this is why. Right. And we want students, you know, there's this progression and we have to always remember that all these skills are being built upon one another. And so of course our students are going to be sounding things out as they're growing that, but the goal is to get it to where those have become automatized, where the students no longer need to sound out those words. So if a student is just constantly in that stage of needing to sound out every single word, that is very taxing. And so if we're looking at that through the lens of then trying to write a composition or write sentences, that does impede their ability to focus on the message. So again, this is why spelling is a part of structured literacy. It is the reciprocal piece of decoding. We have the encoding. And so Mm -hmm. when I have conversations with people, a lot of times um, there's a misunderstanding that spelling is not part of our lessons. And that is nothing further from the truth because spelling should be part of every single structured literacy lesson that we have when we're working on those orthographic patterns. Spelling really is an integral part. They are so tightly interwoven, the decoding and encoding within structured literacy lessons. Yeah. I can't really imagine one without the other. Me either. I know. (laughs) (laughs) all right so so we know number three yeah number three so when we're talking about those cognitive demands when we're asking students to write all right so we've talked about you know the the actual handwriting piece the motor piece we talked about the spelling piece and then we also have the mechanics of writing where we're talking about you know use of grammar and sentence structure, organization of word choice, those mechanical structures we're talking about, like punctuation, capitalization, things like that. All of those play a role in effective writing. And so students who have not yet mastered these skills may struggle with effectively responding to written prompts that they're given. And we really will begin to see this disconnect between what a student knows and what can they can explain orally versus what they're able to show on paper. And yes. I think for our older students, that is really where that is just so highlighted, where they're asked to, to write down their thinking. And it just, the teachers are like, I know that they know it. Like in, in conversations in class, they're, they're answering and they're, they're using the vocabulary. But when they give me this paper, it's, it's you know, very minimal. And, and doesn't show all of their understanding. So we see this big disconnect. So I think that this highlights the importance of working at the sentence level with yeah. kids. And that starts in very early grades. But let's not discount the importance of practice at mm-hmm. the sentence level for yeah. all grades. Because certainly in kindergarten, first grade, we're talking about the simple subject, right? Subject, predicate, a simple sentence, excuse me, subject, predicate, so forth. And then growing more into more compound sentences and 
and different beginnings and, and endings and adding in more descriptors and prepositional phrases and, right. and so forth. But those can't, we can't just assume that students know the structures and mechanics of writing those types of sentences. Right. Or we want them to, unless we are practicing them actively and modeling and showing them how to construct more thoughtful, more detailed sentences. So I think, you know, in books like The Writing Revolution, and that book really, for me, solidified the understanding that we have to work at the sentence level with kids. They have to actually have practice in what is a sentence and what isn't a sentence Mm -hmm. and build incrementally over time, but always start with the sentence level. And it's okay to be getting at the sentence level, even with our older writers. Yeah. So and I think it just out. really highlights the the need to explicitly teach the mechanics of writing in a way that's building upon prior knowledge of oral language and written language and the application of those skills. So we can do things in our classroom, you know, where it is that systematic approach to teaching writing, just like we do when we're teaching reading, right? We have the same thing for writing, but we really can help our students and you know, create very clear expectations, clear rubrics that are aligned with what has been explicitly taught so that students are meeting that standard. One of the things I know when I'm working with my older students, like my middle schoolers and high schoolers, and they'll bring in like a work sample from their classroom and they're showing me and, and it's their questions that are supposed to be like written response questions. And they just, they answer in fragments and I'm like, nope, Nope. And I make them, I make them write in a full sentence. They're like, my teacher doesn't make me do this. And I'm like, I get it, but I'm (gasps) making you do it because I think there's such value to that. I need you to be able to respond at the sentence level to these questions. That is, we are in an academic setting and you should be able to respond as such. And so sometimes I get a little bit of pushback, but it's so valuable for them. And later they're like, I'm glad you made me do that because now when we write paragraphs, it's not a big deal. I'm like, I know. But so I think, you know, for us also to be mindful of what are the expectations that we're holding for students in the classroom, outside of the classroom for written responses and to understand that we're providing that practice when we're expecting that written form. So I think, you know, just some some reflection on that. <laughs> Absolutely. And I know older students like give you a little bit of kickback, like, oh, I don't have to do that, for, you know, in this situation, but you, you're making me do it now. <laughs> but yes, in the long run, trust us, this is going to help you. <laughs> well, and just like in reading, yeah. right, we want to provide students with ample opportunities to read. We also need to provide them with ample opportunities to write and to do so through those different text forms and different expect, you know, those expectations need to be really clear for them. So, you know, a lot of times I'll hear from teachers that the kids are writing in fragment, fragmented sentences. Well, perhaps if, you know, for us to reflect on how often are we asking them to write in complete sentences? What is the expectation? And are we providing them with practice and explicit teaching to write in complete sentences? So, And academic writing, you know, has to be thoughtful and clear communication as opposed to, as we all know, you know, text messaging or (laughs) messaging people, we know is just 
all those yeah. mechanics are kind of just tossed out the window, right? Correct. So, and you um, can teach your students, you know, to take, I, I have them, and this is a skill that has to be explicitly taught as well, but I'll have them read the question. And then we take the question and turn that into the start of our sentence for the response. I'm like, it's right here. Just use that. But that is something that has to be explicitly taught as well. So lots of little lessons. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, the sentence level. <laughs> I know. So yes. Yeah, so let's keep remembering. Let's remember that really important point that practice at the sentence level really is going to um, pay back in the long run mm -hmm. big time. And, um, and you can check out the writing revolution. That book was really just so wonderful. I think for, for practice and yeah. activities and exercises that you can do at the sentence level that really don't take a lot of time either. Number four, we're going to get into, this is one of the tough ones mm -hmm. that our students, our students in particular, really, really grapple with. And that is idea generation. Mm -hmm. Just being able to come up with a clear, coherent idea is super challenging for a lot of kids. Yeah. And before we even want them to get onto paper, we need opportunities to have thoughtful conversation that is structured in a way where they're talking and thinking about ideas, but perhaps you are maybe jotting down their ideas on a piece of chart yeah. paper so that the thought process is is getting there, but you're scaffolding it and supporting it in a way that you'll get them to the point where they can get thoughts on paper. But idea generation is something that for a lot of students, not just ones maybe that may have an IEP, but even children who are learning the English language mm -hmm. and may not have all the ideas that they want to get out just yet, just need a bit more support. Maybe that comes in the form of showing photographs that may spark conversation um, or ideas for writing. And yeah. so we want, but we also want to think about the types of graphic organizers that we might be presenting. So Casey and I were talking before about how may get engaged kids in a mind mapping exercise or a brain dump of some kind so that their thoughts might, if their thoughts aren't quite linear just yet, mm -hmm. they're just sort of all over the place. They can at least just get them out, just dump them out onto paper. For some children, that might mean you scribing. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. That, you know, just to get them, give them a little bit of kick of a kickstart and then have them continue on on their own independently or model that model your own brain dump, model your own mind mapping exercise mm -hmm. and your thought process. Show them your um, metacognitive thinking as you are coming up with ideas. Those were modeling that, you know, in the I do it phase of the gradual release of responsibility, mm -hmm. then we'll help move them into the we do it and then you do it. Yeah, I find particularly for my students that have a double deficit or who have coexisting learning differences like ADHD and dyslexia or dysgraphia and dyslexia or all three who really struggle putting things down like in step-by-step. Step. So instead we always just start with that brain dump. And I just tell them like, get all the ideas out. And a lot of times I will just be their scribe. And what we do then is we go back and we'll number them. Okay, this one makes sense for number one. This one we're actually gonna get rid of. We're not gonna include that one. This one's number two. And it just provides them with a different way 
to get those ideas out and to organize them. Because for my kids, a lot of my students, when they're handed like an outline or things like that, they've, it, it's very confining for them and they get really stuck. So sometimes having that scaffold of doing that mind map just frees them up, gets their thinking going, and then we can go in and organize it so that it makes sense for their response. Yeah. You know, some of those ideas in that mind map might be, be able to be combined together into one. Correct. So that I think is a very valuable exercise to use with kids. But once again, I think if we want them to be able to use those tools, we have to model how they're done first. So, and, and then I, they just get into a habit of doing it that way. They do. And I think one of the things that I've noticed being in private practice, working with students is just how much time is needed for the planning side and mm-hmm. reflecting on when I was in the classroom, you know, and thinking about when, when I would give my middle schoolers time, like planning time, I don't know that I gave them enough time to really generate ideas. So being, you know, now where I'm working in a private setting, I'm able to see just how much time is needed for some of my students to actually get a, some good thoughts out and to be able to express those and to have their message align with whatever the prompt is from the, from the school and things like that. So um, again, kind of reflecting on how much time we're providing for students in each of these areas is, is important. Right. And the planning phase, if you are one of those classroom teachers that has your students all day long, doesn't just have to take place during writing. Perhaps there is a, a an open-ended question at morning meeting that will be connected later to the writing lesson. Perhaps there is a picture book that is directed in some way to what you'll be writing about later. So there'll be multiple opportunities where that same topic may be revisited in a variety of situations so that by the time you are in the writing phase, they will have had other opportunities to talk about it. And they may not even realize that you're weaving that in there. But Mm -hmm. I think using times like morning meeting and having those conversations then will really, really help out later on when, okay, okay, now it's time for writing. And let's talk about what we remember when we were having this conversation in, in our, our morning meeting about, you know, a time you, I don't know, maybe you're writing about facing an obstacle and how you overcame it, something like that. Mm-hmm. So just framing times when you can offer more conversation in the planning phase, I think yeah. is going to be so helpful. I, I think I agree. And I think identifying those students that need that opportunity mm. to have conversations. You'll have some kids that they'll be fine and they won't need that. But yeah. for a lot of our students, they really do need opportunities to talk it out before they're ready to just go straight to writing on paper. So. Right. Offering those language rich experiences really will pay off when they're in the writing phase. Right. All right. So in the next portion, when number five was talking about syntax and that Mm -hmm. is directly related back once again to practicing at the sentence level children need explicit instruction on how to create coherent sentences and using proper sentence structure and how to expand sentences from the simple sentence to something more complex or compound what that looks like and that takes some time and some practice Mm -hmm. and we within the structured literacy lesson can just 
weave that in might just not just be during dictation. It might be a time when, for instance, I was talking about this with Casey earlier, maybe we're discussing the meanings of uh, the multiple meanings of the word tail, tail and tail, and having them construct sentences using either both independently or using them both in one sentence together. So it can be done just in small, small parts. It's all about just weaving that in, but knowing where and when it can be thoughtfully done. And then providing practice with that. So you can always ask them, you know, and even have them identify what kind of a sentence you used in dictation, right? So thinking about ways to bring that in as well. And then we know that, of course, vocabulary is huge. We know vocabulary is huge in reading, but it is also a big deal in writing. When we are asking students to write, we're asking them to convey a message. And part of that includes being mindful of words, your word choice, vocabulary, and the nuances that exist in our language. We have these words that you know, kind of have what we call shades of synonyms, right? Where they have just a smidgen of a different meaning, but they're still under the same umbrella. And so that is very complex and challenging for our students. And that's something that we are constantly bringing into our reading instruction, but also into our writing instruction. So we, as Emily said, right, we can bring in activities where we're having them compare words, use words and sentences, oral sentences, written sentences, but always building that vocabulary. Another thing that I think is really important as we are asking students to write is if we're asking them to write within the academic construct, then we need to provide them with academic vocabulary. So having things like word banks is really beneficial for our students to be able to then apply those higher level academic words into their writing. And in addition to that, we can front load vocabulary that we're expecting students to use as well so and we recognize that vocabulary could be its own episode so (laughs) many important topics to discuss around centered around our vocabulary instruction one book that I always refer back to is bringing words to life one of the authors was Isabel Beck but she really highlights the importance of of bringing in language and conversation yes. about words and posing them in situations like when would it be or when is it important to show your independence and say the word is independence now they're having a conversation about it they're thinking of situations where the word could be applied they're mm-hmm. thinking about examples versus non-examples So I think that a book like that is just going to be so, so useful if you're wondering, okay, well, how can I incorporate and enrich my my students' vocabulary? That is just an excellent resource. Um, And then piggybacking on on what Casey said, but providing those word banks for our students, really, especially with ones that have some word retrieval issues, Mm -hmm. who just, you know, want to be able to use certain words in their writing, but maybe they just can't remember them off the, you know, or just not come, it's on the, not on the tip of their tongue, right? So by having that word bank available, and we're not just talking for younger students, we're talking right. for, for older students too. They still yeah. need a word bank. They might need 
word banks that include words that have different suffixes on the endings so that it can, mm-hmm. so that grammar instruction is woven in there. Okay, well, this is the form when the word is being used as a verb versus right. this one as an adjective and so forth. But offering those word banks, I think, is going to be increasingly important even as they get older. Yes. I'm so glad you brought that up. I was, I was just getting ready to jump in and say that. So I'm so glad <laughs> that you brought yeah. up the part of using word banks for our older students as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. I mean, we see them a lot with our younger students because mm-hmm. we want to help them generate, but older kids need them too. All right. So we're, we're on number seven now <laughs> with text structure. And I think that when we're talking about text structure and uh, Casey, you can back me up. We're talking mm-hmm. about what is age appropriate. And so when we're starting with our younger students, obviously we're working with, you know, at the sentence level, just getting them to see what a complete thought is, and then incrementally working our way up to perhaps paragraph form, to Mm -hmm. a short story that maybe uh, where they're illustrated with some pictures, but each text structure is going to have perhaps a specific graphic organizer that accompanies it may have a specific outline format. The discussion of audience comes in there, you know, who is the list, who who will be the reader or who's your audience and so forth. Right. And I think one of the things that's that's important is that um, for us to provide students ample opportunity to become automatic with those before moving on and introducing another one, because we, we need to provide them with opportunities to practice those skills so that they really understand it. They really understand the written form, how that structure looks. And as Emily said, at that sophistication level, that's expected for their grade. So we need to provide them with those opportunities to, to practice those skills. And just to reiterate the practice of the sentence level, once again, is not time wasted. If you're feeling like, oh my goodness, how am I going to get my kids to write a five paragraph essay by, you know, by April, something like that. Remember, your scaffolding, your foundational time in writing will not be and will not go unrecognized. The time and effort you put into that with your students will pay off for sure. Well, and I think if we remember, even writing at the sentence level, we can Mm -hmm. have our, our older students, you know, as we're progressing through sentence level, there's a hierarchy as well. And some of those absolutely compound complex sentences are quite academic and quite challenging to write. And so we can really, you know, step up those levels as students become proficient. Um, We're not just saying to stay at the simple sentence level. We are certainly saying you enhance that and and you do that with your conjunctions and you do that with your introductions and you do that. There are so many different ways for you to enhance sentences for students to meet their expectations and the sophistication level that is needed for their grades. And Casey, I don't know if you do this, but the longer I'm with the student, the more advanced they become with me. My dictation is not just at the sentence level. We'll we'll begin dictating short paragraphs Mm -hmm. where they have to use appropriate commas in certain parts or using um, proper dialogue. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're so sentence dictation can become paragraph dictation. Right. And so, I mean, depending on the the student you're with, whether they're prepared to handle that. 
Yeah. And that's also really enhancing and working that, that working memory and that phonological working memory for our students, which we know is something we need to be building as well. Absolutely. Lots of conversations about that. And then when we ask students to move into (laughs) the (laughs) processes, right? So the revising and the editing that, you know, when we're, we're want, we want students to be able to proofread and edit their work, of course, but in into account that those, again, are things that need to be explicitly taught and built upon as students become proficient, because it's going to be talking about conventions of spelling, punctuation, sentence construction, idea development, right? So one of the things that Emily and I were talking about as we're preparing this is, is really helping as a tip for us to really understand that we can break apart those processes. So We don't want our students looking through the lens of, okay, I'm writing this and I'm revising and I'm editing at the same time to really break those apart because they are different and we can approach them differently. So if we're looking at revising, we're looking at content. Are there ways for us to combine sentences to make them more proficient? Are there things that we need to expand upon? Are there things that we need to remove? And then when we go into the editing, that's a different lens. That's when we're really looking at, you know, the grammar piece and the spelling and the, you know, all of those other mechanical components. And so I think helping students understand that that is a process and we break them apart. And within each of those, you have expectations. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We try to try to have try to think of it as two different teams wearing Mm -hmm. two different hats. You've got your revision team because to be a successful team, there are certain components and that's where your little checklist comes in. Like you haven't started every sentence with I, (laughs) something (laughs) as simple as that for our younger students. Right. But you, you, you've looked carefully at your word choice. You've had some sentence expanders, things like that. We really do want these two different teams, the revision team and the editing team to work separately because asking a child to do both at the same time really is, I think, even more cognitively demanding and we really aren't going to get the results that we want because they tend, you know, when, we all know this, when kids get into those processes of revising and editing, what do they want to be? They want to be done. (laughs) They don't want to really get into that part. But if we sort of explain like each team has a job and there are little parts to their job and each one has their little checklist and we're just helping them be a bit more methodical so Mm -hmm. that it's not, okay, I'm done. (laughs) Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Nine and 10, Casey, with content and purpose and audience. Mm-hmm. I think those can kind of be combined together. Yep. Think about content with our students. I think that sort of harkens back to our idea generation, but mm-hmm. also think being really, really careful when we are writing, for instance, uh, an informational piece of writing. Yeah. How is that? How is our structure? How are we presenting the topic where it's giving facts? not opinions when we're writing perhaps a piece where it's like a how-to are we linear in our steps are we using sequential words with our sentences when we're in narrative form are we starting with you know an, an interesting lead into the story that maybe grabs the writer's attention those are all types of writing that take 
a lot of time and practice and modeling. Mm -hmm. But I think when we know the writer's purpose, when our students know the writer's purpose in their audience, then they can sort of get into that role more easily. But it's something that I think does take quite a bit of time. That's why a lot of classroom teachers, as we all know, you know, they'll do these units. Yeah. And I think, you know, as we're having students determine that content, we also can help them understand how do you then go back to, like, if you've been reading informational pieces, how do you pull in what you read into your writing? Um, So all of those need to be explicitly taught. Yeah. I think even with the written response, like this is how do we teach children to back up their answer with details from what they just read? Like, How do you weave in, you know, as the author said, blah, 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 you know, this shows me that how to help a student weave in proof from what they've read. Because we know that is such an important part of written response. That's a different style of writing altogether than any kind of narrative or expository writing. Right. And then I know that I said this earlier, but providing students with, with opportunities to practice that purpose of writing before we introduce another or move on to another um, can really benefit our students so that they become proficient in writing a written response or writing an essay or, you know, writing for science class. What does that look like? Writing in math class, you know, having students start to write across content areas um, is very beneficial as well, but it needs to be explicitly taught for what that structure looks like. I think with with writing, I don't think we can take anything for granted with what our kids, we, what we think they may know. Right. <laughs> I know lots of things that they don't or they forget or need extra practice with um, or just maybe their level of understanding is just is very superficial at that point so as especially as you begin a new school year with a student once again all of that extra modeling and practice that you do up front will pay off right and so when we're getting into thinking about the structured literacy lesson Casey and I have mentioned a few things here and there throughout these 10 components that we've discussed there, how that looks within the confines of even an intervention lesson or or Mm -hmm. any kind of structured literacy lesson that you may have with a classroom students. But I think what we see writing as is just sort of small bits that are woven in throughout. It's not just something that is just, hey, we're going to stop and write this. There are small bits that we can incorporate, whether it's cursive handwriting practice, whether it's multiple meaning words, where we're generating sentences using the word correctly within context, whether it's during dictation time, where there is an expectation that the student has to use proper punctuation in their mechanics, when we even provide something like cups or some people use cops or chops when they're editing their sentence dictation at the end, providing just like mini checklists. We really feel, especially in within Orton-Gillingham, that writing is woven in quite a bit. Yeah. And I think hopefully the big takeaway for this is that, you know, writing should certainly be part of our lessons and it really should align with the progression of our scope and sequence. So you can start even with quote unquote writing 
with your students at the word level, at the sentence level. And as you're progressing, you want to increase that difficulty with writing as well as you introduce higher concepts throughout your lesson. And the other big thing, right, is that writing, again, should be explicitly taught. We want to teach those skills and we want to provide ample opportunities for practice. And so leaving those in throughout our lessons is beneficial and necessary for our students. And let's keep in mind that as, as you're looking at your progression, we can be weaving in starting with simple morphological concepts, mm-hmm. like simple suffixes, like suffix S, E, D, I, N, G, and incorporating that into their writing. And that can become part of your writing checklist that you used simple suffixes correctly in certain, not just sentence dictation, but maybe perhaps in a sentence generation of some kind, whether you're in the classroom or an intervention setting, support that. You can even think about how can you add in writing to your decodable text, like as a written response or to your informational text or whatever, you know, reading piece you're having your students do. There's a, that there's a great way to bridge that into written responses as your students move up that scope and sequence. I know it's always that famous quote that people have probably heard over and over and over again. (laughs) What is it? Read. I don't even know. I don't remember who said it. Sorry. Reading is breathing in and writing is breathing out. Mm -hmm. I think I like that quote because it really shows how the two really are like a symbiotic relationship, right? They they go hand in hand. They They support one another. Obviously, the more decoding instruction you have, children are ready to be applying that in the writing portion. And um, if you are looking for more ideas and activities, definitely send Casey and I an email. If you're wondering, you know, give us some more writing ideas or, right. or if you have an idea for future episodes, we realized this was quite a meaty episode <laughs> with mm-hmm. lots and lots of different things to consider. And we tried to come at it from the lens with both classroom teacher, but also from the intervention setting as well. But also keeping in mind that, yes, above everything, there there are that writing does have cognitive demands and that we need to be really, really um, mindful of that when we're planning our writing instruction, being developmentally appropriate, offering scaffolds, modeling, all of that. Absolutely. So, um, we are so we would love to hear from you if you do want to send us an email Mm -hmm. um we do have a question to wrap up today right and it's sort of unrelated to what we're talking about but we do like to end with a question when we do have one from a listener and this question was asking about dyslexia screeners so they were wondering which dyslexia screeners we use so casey and i as you both know, are not in the classroom setting, in the general classroom setting. We are in an intervention setting. However, we are aware and there are dyslexia screeners that can are sort of what we refer to as universal, that we all use no matter what the situation. So Casey, what did we have? We had a short list of some of the universal screeners that we think are really great for everybody to use. Right. Yeah. And I, I actually go into a couple of schools and provide some of these universal screeners um, to students. So when we're thinking about 
testing for dyslexia, or we'll get this question a lot about how can we get a screener for dyslexia? And I think I, I know we answered it in last episode, but I, I think it's, it warrants being reiterated that dyslexia is not something that has like a singular assessment for because we're looking for characteristics. And so part of what we can do is we can use these universal screeners to help us identify students who are on target, who may need classroom interventions, and then we can target those students who are going to need intense interventions. And what we can do is we can use these universal screeners, whether we're looking at Dibbles or Core Phonics Survey or the screener from Letters, the screener from Nyhouse, looking at the past, we can use any of these screeners to really break down the data and to see where the student is having a hard time. And if perhaps the student has some of those characteristics that would warrant further testing. For me, the big thing when we're looking at universal screeners is then to make sure that the interventions that we're providing are appropriate and that we're using those screeners you know, to help make those groupings. And then we're providing progress monitoring throughout. Right. So the universal screener can be for all kids, you know, initially. So we're finding and seeing, you know, where they are in their foundational skills of reading and digging deeper with the ones that you feel like, okay, we're raising some red flags. Something to consider, obviously, is the timing of your screeners. So I know some people may not want to use the screener right away when a kid first comes in, but some do. Um, there's there's conversation about waiting we where you know you may want to wait a few weeks before the students are comfortable with you to begin screening at the beginning of the school year. Some like to start right away. It is important that because school years are and can be pretty disruptive, <laughs> right? Our schedules just get really, really choppy at times because of vacations or days off or early release and things like that. We want to have your intervention model in place. It isn't just enough to have that screener. It's screen, intervene. So you want to make sure that whatever you do choose, so we suggested a few like Dibbles, The Past, Letters Has One, Nyehouse, Core, all those are great to, to try out and have been tried and tested by the companies that have put them out. So are considered trusted and valid resources that we know of so far, right? In 2022, you know, because things can change over time. But if you're listening and I don't know, well, it's 2030, maybe there's something better (laughs) down the road, Casey. I don't know. I'm sure there will be. (laughs) Probably will be. So, but that's what we have so far. But yes, have those interventions though ready to go. Right. And I think it's important to, right, as Emily said, have those interventions ready, but also know that if we have students that are falling into the needs intense interventions category, that we don't necessarily have to wait to to do further testing. So really this is comes down to teacher knowledge and understanding the students that are sitting in front of us and and what those characteristics are. So a lot to take in. All right. Uh, We'd like to just wrap up today. So we thank you for that listener. We hope that was helpful and uh, answered your question, but we'd like to just wrap up up today by 
reminding you that Casey and I love it. We can show your support. We both have quite a few resources in our stores that if you are a first-time listener and don't know about, we're going to fill you in on. So uh, Casey, how can we find your store? Yeah, so I have a store both on Teacher Pay Teacher, but also on my website. And so um, my Teacher Pay Teacher store is the Dyslexia Classroom. And on my website, I have um, resources, but I also have a color coding course to teaching what we call sight words. And we know all words want to be sight words, but it really breaks down the um, orthographic mapping process and connects phonology to spelling generalizations and to the etymology and morphology within our language. So you can find that at www.thedyslexiaclassroom.com. All right. Wonderful. And my uh, teacher's pay teacher's store is Emily Gibbons, the literacy nest. And then my website has a store on the literacynest.com. And in addition to what Casey was mentioning, there are there's new course offerings as well on uh, my website. Just click on the tab that says courses and you will see we've got a great monthly membership there with some wonderful speakers in addition to the summer events that I have as well. Yeah. So we both really, really appreciate you taking the time to check those out and let us know if you have any questions. And this podcast website is togetherinliteracy.com. And so you can check out at previous episodes. You can read the blog posts and reach out to us. There's there some freebies on there. I believe there's even a coupon. You checked out the blog post from episode six. Mm-hmm. And uh, we look forward to speaking next time. We'll be on episode nine, moving right along. <laughs> All right. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you so much. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Together in Literacy podcast today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a positive review and subscribe to the podcast. Each comment means a great deal to us. And if you have any questions for us that you would like answered on the Together in Literacy podcast, please contact us at support at togetherinliteracy.com. Be sure to visit the website www.togetherinliteracy.com for show notes, downloads, and goodies. Thank you for helping us spread the word about the Together in Literacy podcast. We'll see you next time.